0: The first thing I want to say really this evening is that um, when Western people start to engage in meditation practices and particularly ones associated with Buddhist meditation practices, unlike those born within the traditions, we generally do it out of a motivation. And that motivation can often be that there is a recognition, no matter how badly discerned, that something is not quite right with our lives. I tend to think, and I don't know, um, I'm not going to do a survey of it, that when I look at a group like yourselves, there's possibly some reason that's brought you into doing meditation practice or just inquiring into it, being interested, to see if there's anything there at all that can help you. So there's generally the kind of recognition that there is... Something you want to change, something you want to be different in your lives. And this becomes a really important question because it becomes a question of actually how do we want to live our lives as, we, you know, as they unfurl before us? In which way do we want to live and be in this world? Do I want to be, might be the question... Angry and aggressive, sad and unhappy, distressed sometimes, not always. Do I want to be this or do I want something else in my life, something different to be there, some other quality of life? The Dalai Lama is very fond of saying that, of course, all sentient creatures, including human beings, seek some degree of happiness. Happiness is a funny word. I'm not very, hap- I'm not very happy with happiness. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> I tend to think perhaps it's more towards contentment. And in fact, this is something the Buddha says in these very early strata of texts, that the greatest happiness that we can all seek for is contentment, some degree of contentment in our life, when we're not thrown off balance by what is the, the winds of fortune. And the way those winds of fortune assail us in our lives. To maintain some kind of equanimity in the hurly burly of life, in all the things that happen to us, the vicissitudes that come upon us. To maintain poise and balance in this rather than to be simply keep being buffeted from one side to the other by whatever is going on in our lives. So perhaps, and I do say perhaps, perhaps we're, as Western people, engaging in meditation practices such as the meta-practice which we've been engaging in today, looking for something which is a quality which actually isn't there at this present moment in our lives. I don't know. This is is a surmise uh, based on lots of years of experience of teaching, but it's still a surmise that there is something that brings us here some kind of quality that we're looking for in our life perhaps that is absent now in a way that's the buddha's starting point you know in the days when he was teaching of course he didn't have a whole load of people born into a tradition he had to convince persuade rationally argue with people that there was a better way of living their lives than the lives that they had been engaged in hitherto. Not a life which was based on religious dogma, on blindness of faith or anything of this sort, but a life lived with clarity, a life lived with openness and what I would call the capacity to investigate rather than the capacity to close things down through Simple answers to difficult questions. Now, no matter what your stance is, I'm sure perhaps most of you will agree that life is not easy. It's uh, often extremely difficult. The things that happen to us and the things that will happen to us are not some of the easiest. And this is the very stuff that the figure who we come to call the Buddha was dealing with. The difficulties of life. And he was not offering consolation. He was not offering any cheap consolations. He didn't say that now, now, everything is going to be all right in the end. Um, There is going to be some kind of afterlife where everything is going to be rosy. He never painted that consolatory picture at all. He didn't get into the realms of speculative, perhaps the word I will use as a philosophical term, speculative metaphysics. He spoke about there being an all-all. It's something called the Saba Sutta. There is an all, he says, and the all is this. Our body, our nose, our tongue, our eyes, our ears and our mind. I teach you the all. This is the all. That is all there is. Not looking, in other words, outside of our own experience for something to be consolatory, but to look within our experience, for something that at least can be healing, if not consolatory. His is very much a path of healing. The meditation practices that we've been exploring just for this day, a very, very short period of time, are healing practices. And what they seek to heal is an existential distress, which I mentioned last night. The existential distress is the distress which we call dukkha. I've done this so many times in this room, I hesitate to do it yet again. But this word dukkha, I actually did a small exercise with a group recently um, about around this word dukkha. We came up with 48 words which might, might actually cover what the word dukkha means. Everything from the, as I mentioned last night, the minor irritations... The angers, the resentments, the jealousies, the pettinesses, uh, the distress, the suffering, everything that we can think of in these negative terms. And I came, as I say, literally we came up with about 48 words. Um, And I could have put ellipses at the end of it to be added to, you know, because there are so many other senses of distress which um, are present in human life and present in our experience sometimes acknowledged because we can't not acknowledge what is going on, sometimes unacknowledged because it's at a very very low level, a low level of pain, a low level of distress, a low level of unsatisfactoriness in our lives. But somehow perhaps that unsatisfactoriness gets through to us even if it remains only at a low level and we that there appears to be something missing that could be in the heart of our life that isn't necessarily fulfilled by all of the things which are proffered within our societies as means of fulfilling ourselves. And this path in many senses is, I wouldn't say at odds with society, but it's going in a different direction. I hesitate to call it a spiritual path but in many ways it is because it's about the development of you know our spiritual side but it's going in a in a different direction to the path of society and the path of all the things that society offers as ways that we can supposedly fulfill ourselves it's a very interesting fact and some of you will probably know this that as wealth rises in countries exponentially depression rises as well. It's a very interesting fact. According to the World Health Organization, in the next 10 years, the next biggest major health problem outside of cardiac problems is going to be depression. Yeah? These are not very good statistics in the sense of saying something about the failure of our societies to provide us with any sense of fulfilment, despite the myriad of ways in which our societies offer and proffer the kinds of fulfilments that we see around us. Particularly the fulfilments, as we all know, because they're there very much almost thrust in our face a lot of the time, the fulfilments that it's supposedly offered, through things like wealth, fame, celebrity, money, power, status... All of these things, not everybody can get them. So they're left feeling depressed and even those who get them are often depressed because they don't feel um, that that very status, that very power, that very money buys them what they want. It doesn't buy them the peace of mind, it doesn't buy them a sense of fulfilment or perhaps contentment that's being striven for. So there's also there's a very big failure, I think, think, in our societies. And this path goes against that. In fact, even in the Buddha's time, this is two and a half thousand years ago, you have to always bear this in mind, this is two and a half thousand years ago, the Buddha is saying that the very tenor of the path of meditation, the very path of mindfulness, let me call it that, the very path of mindfulness is going against the tide. It's swimming against the tide moving against the mass of what society is asking us to be part of. The path of metta itself, the path of friendliness, the path of boundless friendliness, is very much against our societal conditioning, which is often about divisiveness. And so this path that's being proffered in terms of metta is one which is, which is a healing path. A path which doesn't necessarily in the initial stages give rise to immediate feelings of greater kindness. But perhaps an ability to act with a greater kindness even if there isn't the feeling there by this constant inclination of the mind. Now, one of the reasons why the Buddha claims that we suffer so much distress, and I use those two words together in a way, because in a sense what we are experiencing are often distress patterns in our lives, which give rise to all kinds of aberrant behavior, the kind of neuroses and the kind of obsessive-compulsive disorders that actually most of us engage in from the Buddha's perspective – everybody has OCD of some form or another um, because we engage in these consolatory behaviours which actually are entrapping. They are simply reactive. They are, the, in some senses, they're the indicators of a sense of lack, a sense of fulfilment in our lives, a lack of sense of fulfilment in our lives. And so we engage in these seemingly peculiar behaviours again and again and again, And there's a circularity to our experience. I don't know if you've ever felt this. There's a circularity to our experience which literally makes it feel like you're going round in circles, chasing our tails, doing the same thing. Ever had that feeling of déjà vu? Ever had that? Where you feel that you're ending up doing the same thing and often making the same mistakes that you made a number of years ago, often in the same ways. Um... This going round in circles has a technical name in in Buddhist languages which is known as Sangsara, which literally means to go round in circles. That is the condition that we find ourselves in. And the feeling tone of that going round in circles is Dukkha. That's the feeling tone. That's the primary tone of our experience is one of Dukkha. Not to discount the fact that we have joys and that there is degrees of happiness in our lives. We're not saying that. That's not what's being indicated here. But we desperately cling to those joys and we desperately cling to those happinesses almost in the sure knowledge, of course, that they're going to pass away, that something else is going to happen. So we try to hold on to them. We try to firm up and make secure that which is actually radically insecure, We live in a radically contingent world, in a radically radically contingent existence in which nothing is certain. I came across a quote, which I'm very fond of quoting in in this uh, meditation hall in Gaia House, which is, relax, nothing is under control. (laughs) Because literally anything can happen. Um, And almost anything does happen. Not to say it doesn't have causes and conditions for its happening, but it's often unexpected because we're looking for certainty. We're often looking for security. We're often looking for consolation. And this is not what the Buddha offers. What the Buddha offers is a radical way of dealing with life's contingencies, with its uncertainties, without constantly being buffeted by it. So it's not burying our our head in the sands Trying to avoid what is happening in life, not looking to some other place where everything is going to be okay, but living this life with its difficulty. You know, this is basically the Buddha's message. How to live this life with its difficulty. Not to live an other life, you know, possibility with the possibility of something after death, but to live this life in its fullest, you know with, and I keep emphasising that I know, but with the difficulty that we encounter. Towards the end of his life, in fact the very last supposedly recorded words of the Buddha, I'll give you the elegant version, I'll give you the modern version. The elegant version goes like this, is that all compounded phenomena, that includes you and I by the way, all compounded phenomena are impermanent, now strive on diligently. What is actually saying? Let's translate that a little bit into modern English, shall we? Into modern English, it would go something like this: Absolutely everything you see, including you, is impermanent. Now get on with it. <laughs> you know, that's to strive on diligently. Now live your life in the face of that. Now, this is the culmination. By the way, I might just add: this fi- these final words are the culmination of forty-five years of teaching. It's a long teaching career. He doesn't go into va- some vast dispensation at the end of his life. He tells it as it is. You know, this life is impermanent. It's fragile. It's contingent. Everything within it that touches us is fragile and contingent. And yet somehow, unless we go under with despair about it, then somehow then we must try to make sense and live with that sense of impermanence and uncertainty. One of the great things, one of the characteristics that the Buddha says of existence is that it's marked 100% by impermanence. (coughs) That Everything we see is impermanent. Nothing will remain the same. In a thousand years from now, all this, everything will have changed. Possibly all of these edifices around us and buildings will have disappeared just as they have from a thousand years previously. Certainly we will no longer be here, that's for sure. However, there is a kind of touch of what I call human hubris in all of this. It's because we can nod our heads sagely to this idea that everything is impermanent yet somehow, somehow something is going, not me. That I'm somehow exempt. I've got the exemption certificate (laughs) from all of this. And I don't have to take part in this. Well, it's not true. (laughs) This includes us. It's all inclusive. Now, all I'm saying is not to make you miserable. This is not the aim. Uh, The aim of Dharma Talks is not to create yet more misery. Um, but to say that things don't have to be like this, and this is the message of the Buddha's teaching that we can actually live in a radically different way where we can find fulfillment within radical contingency, where we can find some sense of meaning within the seeming meaning, meaningless flux of life. This is what his teaching is about. This is what the path of mindfulness is about. It's not a part of the uh, path of salving some kind of area of our mind or our conscience or anything else like that and creating other fantasies it's actually a very specific way of being able to live our lives with lives with its difficulty so rather than kind of stepping outside of life because we find it so difficult this is more like an absolute engagement with it coming into really literally the heart of life, rather than trying to escape. There is no escape whilst we're here. We either deal with it or it can somehow swamp us as well. This is, the, this is the kind of message that the Buddha is really giving us. Now, in his own time, there were all kinds of religious practices which were really about afterlives and rebirth and all sorts of things. And he set his face squarely against these as being somehow false consolations, that they didn't actually really deal with life. They put, you know, kind of the reality, the realness, the um, the possibility of fulfilment and contentment into some impossible realm. Yeah, you know, into somewhere else. The Buddha makes it again very, very clear in his own teaching. He says, if we stray outside of our own habitat we allow ourselves open to danger. Our own habitat, by the way, is simply our body. He says everything that we need to be needs to be known. Both the generation of dukkha and the cessation of dukkha is to be found, as he says, within this fathom long carcass and nowhere else. The fathom long carcass is literally the six foot body. Yeah. So it's to be found here and it's to be found now not in some other time. So there is a possibility that is open to every one of us that he gives. And the path of metta, the path that we're exploring, and I'll come more to this a little bit later in the talk, the path of metta is one way of coming to this understanding and to a greater engagement with life. This path of kindness, this path of generosity, this path of friendliness is one way of achieving the goal of what the Buddha talks about. Now the goal of what he talks about is not some mystical state. Let me make this very, very clear. From the early texts, from the early teachings, it's very clear that this goal of the Buddhas is to become, as the word Buddha itself literally means, is to become awake. To wake up. I always feel that this notion of awakening... And now, you've probably heard the word enlightenment. So many popular books of Buddhism bandy around the word, word enlightenment. The Buddha was enlightened. He had an enlightenment experience. Literally, the word in Pali and Sanskrit means to become awakened. It comes from a pali Sanskrit word which is bodhi, which means to wake up. The word Buddhism itself is a Western invention. Yeah, completely meaningless, really, unless you translate it perhaps as wake upism. <laughs> yeah, that's about the only way you could possibly translate it that makes any sense in to, in relation to the primary tradition of this. So the goal is to become awake. Now there is an implication there, isn't there? And I'm sure you've all spotted it. I know certainly some of you who was with with me in one of the groups today would have heard me say this. That if the goal is to become awake or awakened, then the implication is that we're asleep most of the time. We somehow don't quite see the very nature of the way things are. And actually that's one way that this awakening process is defined, to wake up to the way things actually are. Yata in Pali to see the way they actually are, not the way we would like them to be, because the world, as we very well know, actually isn't the way we would like it to be. If we want it to be a certain way and it's another, it's usually generally because we're clinging to a false conception of the way it is. And one of those false conceptions could be, since I've mentioned it already, could be the idea that things have some degree of permanence. They don't have any permanence, the Buddha is saying. They are radically impermanent. There are degrees of impermanence. Some things will last longer than others. Human life, in comparison with the Himalaya, are quite is quite fleeting. You know, it's quite fleeting. It's here, and then it's gone. You know, and our lives are all too short sometimes. Yet, this is the reality of it. Um. The maximum human age I think has reached has been about 123, something like that. A French lady who managed to reach 123 and gave up smoking at 117. (laughs) Why, I ask. (laughs) (laughs) If she survived that long. (laughs) So... Our lives are radically contingent and this is part of the way things are. Yet we walk around in the sleepwalking state in a sense not seeing the way things are but only seeing our dreams, just seeing our fantasies, seeing our nightmares, not actually seeing and living in accordance. Now the problem with this is it's it's guaranteed, I'm going to use the Pali word again I hope i familiarise you with it by the end of at least tomorrow Um, but there's going to be a guaranteed sense of dukkha if you cling to your fantasies and reality is completely different from your fantasies because at some point in time, no matter how deeply held your fantasy is going to be ruptured it's going to be ruptured by reality bursting through yeah Even the most healthy person will get sick at some point in time. So even if we've lived a life of great health and vitality and vigor, at some point age catches up with us. And it's going to rupture that sense of our well-being in the world. So the Buddha says it's far better to live in accordance with the way things are, rather than live these fantasies which are guaranteed to produce nothing other than pain for ourselves. Now, as I mentioned last night, I don't want to go particularly much into it again, but last night I said that, of course, that a lot of this dukkha is a self-inflicted wound. It's something we inflict upon ourselves. We do it because not only is there the what is happening which is painful, but there's the reactiveness to what is happening. We react in all sorts of ways. Often those reactions, particularly by somebody who knows you very well, can be predicted. In fact, they can even create them out of you. (laughs) Somebody who can press all your buttons and get the reactions going. So these reactions are almost like they're programmed into us. Now, the path of meditation is to undo all this. The path of mindfulness is to bring us back from this reactiveness, this ability to keep on creating wounds on ourselves and on others. I mean, if we're in distress ourselves, we don't like to keep it to ourselves, do we? We tend to like to spread it around a bit. You know, why have somebody happy around you when you're miserable? We can... Try to make them miserable as well. Now I'm joking about this, but this is often what we do. We're engaged in a sense of the dissemination of our own pain, our own woundedness. And so this meditative path, this path of mindfulness as I'm calling it, is a path of healing, ultimately. Healing the distress. Not that things are not going to happen to you, but they're not going to happen to you in quite the same way because we don't hold them in quite the same way. And so it's learning to hold things in a different way so that there can be patterns of responsiveness in our lives rather than patterns of reactiveness. There doesn't seem to be a lot of difference between those two words, reaction and response. In fact, sometimes some people use them interchangeably. They sort of slip and slide and they merge together as almost being synonymous but they're not reactiveness is literally that you know, it's almost Pavlovian there is this particular stimuli and then there is this particular response if there is this thing that I want and I like there I am salivating for it you know, I see, this, I use this metaphorically sometimes it could be literally there I am salivating for it. If there is something I dislike, don't want, there I am running away from it as quickly as possible, not wanting to know it. Not wanting to know. And in fact, sometimes these fundamental conditions of life, such as the impermanence, such the lack of essentiality to any phenomena that we encounter in our lives, sometimes we avoid those deliberately. We bury our heads in the sand. We try to avoid encountering that. So when I talk about the path of mindfulness as being a healing path, it's a path which allows us to come perhaps into greater contact with life's realities without wishing to immediately stabilize, grab hold, make certainties, and then set ourselves up for suffering and for more pain and distress but it's also not about running away either. It's a path or a means or a strategy by which we can learn to encounter what is and not be thrown off balance by it. Now one way of engaging in this is the friendliness. We are not going to, as I mentioned last night, learn to like everybody. We're not going to learn to love everybody. These can be big ideals which perhaps we can aspire to, but also feel positively defeated by because they're such huge ideals. Whereas I think the Buddha is much more realistic in saying we can't like everybody, we can't love everybody, but we can be friendly, we can develop friendliness and particularly if we start to develop friendliness towards ourselves, then we can extend it, we can grow fat, as he says, we can swell up with friendliness, whereby we don't have to see everything as our enemy or something that we're in conflict with. The path of mindfulness in general and the path of friendliness are both the same thing. They're not two separate entities. They are not going in two different directions. The path of mindfulness leads to friendliness, and the path of friendliness leads to mindfulness. You know, they are going in the same way. They're going to the same place. The path of compassion, which in a sense is the outgrowth of the path of friendliness, is literally outgoing kindliness. That's probably the best way of translating the word karuna, is outgoing kindliness. It's actually friendliness in action. This is what it is. It's simply friendliness in action. Again, even in Buddhist circles, we can make a big deal of this and see this as almost something that we can never aspire to being, yet most of us can be outgoingly friendly and kindly in our lives, in the way that we approach others and in our dealings with others. But just returning a second back to the starting point of the Buddha's, Buddha's quest, the Buddha's investigation. In a very famous sutta, as some of you might know, it's even quoted by T.S. Eliot in The Wasteland, uh, there is a, there's a particular sutta, which is usually translated as a sermon, which I don't like, or a discourse, which is known as the fire discourse. And in this, the Buddha says, that the whole world is burning. He uses the metaphor of fire because it's very much used in ancient India. But he uses this metaphor in a particular way. He says everything is burning. The eyes are burning, the ears are burning, the nose is burning, the tongue is burning, and the body is burning, and the mind is burning. Everything is burning with three fires. The fires of greed, the fires of aversion, and the fires of delusion. And that is the Buddha's, in some senses, diagnosis of our stuckness, where we are. This is why we dukkha. It's a verb form, actually, in Pali. You know, you say, we dukkha. You know, we are dukkering. You know, nothing else. So we are dukkering because of these three fires. Because of greed, aversion, and delusion. And the path that the Buddha outlines, whether it's the path of mindfulness in its generalized sense or the path of friendliness and compassion and kindness and equanimity and gentle joy. The end result of all of this is to have a life that is not driven by greed, aversion and delusion, but to have a life that perhaps is more deeply rooted in the complete diametric opposites of those. So instead of greed, aversion, and delusion, we have generosity, a life that is rooted in generosity. That includes friendliness because it's generosity of spirit. It's not generosity just with material things. And again, we often hear it only in the Western world because we're so caught up in the material world that we hear it only as materiality. So generosity is the generosity of spirit, the generosity that that can offer and proffer friendship to others as well. Instead of aversion, then we have this friendliness, we have this kindness, we have this compassion. This is the root of wholesome mental states, as is the generosity. And instead of delusion, a positively not wanting to know about the difficult stuff of life, we have an understanding We have insight into the way it really is. So as you can see, and I'm sure you can surmise without me going into too much detail this evening, that a life that has at its core not greed, aversion, and delusion, but has at its core generosity, friendliness, and understanding is in a sense a completely different life. And... The whole path of the Dharma, as the Buddha envisaged it, was a path to effecting that transformation from a life which is steeped in greed, aversion, and delusion, and all of the psychological states which are rooted in it. Because all of our unwholesome psychological states, according to his teaching, are rooted, in some sense genealogically, into those three roots. They can all be traceable back to those three roots. So any of our unwholesome psychologies, from our simple irritability, to our avarice, to our miserliness, to all of these areas such as jealousy, all of them can be seen to be rooted back in greed, aversion and delusion. So it's affecting that transformation, to affect the transformation in this very life, as he puts it. In this very life, not in another life, but in this very life, to effect this transformation, um, to live completely differently from the way that we live now. And the wholesome psychology that we speak about in Buddhism and Buddhist practice is rooted in those opposites. It's rooted in the generosity the friendliness, and the understanding about the way life is. And the understanding is the core bit because without that understanding we still live fantasies. You know, we can live fantasies of compassion. As I mentioned last night, often the fantasies of compassion is that we have an endless pot or well of compassion that we can keep dipping into without ever replenishing it without ever doing anything to nurture ourselves. And the Buddha says, this is not the case. In order to give, in order to engage in acts of compassion, in these outgoing acts of kindliness, in order to be friendly towards others, I have to nourish myself. This is the starting point. Remember I was saying last night it's not about others above you and not about yourself above above others. But getting that balance right. You know, nurturing yourself, nourishing yourself in such a way that there is something to give, somewhere that's actually a repository within your sense of being from which these acts of kindness, these acts of friendliness, can arise naturally because they're being replenished naturally in your ordinary life. Now, whatever form of meditation, even if, if you end up doing meditation as a practice, and I know there's quite a lot of new people here, new to meditation that is, if you end up doing whatever form it is, it is a nourishing activity. It's something which starts to heal this sense of being in the world. Not by making the world different, but by helping us to learn to accept often the way it is. Often helping us to accept its difficulty without us getting into depression, without us getting into states of misery and distress about it. Because as I've tried to stress throughout, this is not about burying our heads in the sand. This is not about evading the way things are. The path of boundless friendliness, the path of outgoing kindness, the path of gentle joy and equanimity are about a realism, a dealing with life as it comes to us. With all of that difficulty which I've seemingly gone on about so far this evening... I don't wish to kind of tax your patience with me with that but it's important to stress that because you know this is a realistic path it's not a path that says everything is going to be okay and in fact pain and distress is not going to happen to you but what it is a path of is saying that we can deal with these things difficult these difficulties in a different way when they arise in our lives path or or a way perhaps is better than a path a way that leads to a healing. A healing of the heart sometimes and I don't use that metaphor lightly, it's not one that I use a lot but a healing of the heart when the heart is actually riven in some way um, by simply the living of life or the things that happen to us within it. So Ultimately, what we're speaking about here is something which has a lot to do with a hopefulness, but not a hopefulness that's built on the naivety of there is a better place. As far as the Buddha is concerned, you know, in these early texts, I'm not saying what happens in later forms of Buddhism, because all sorts of religious consolations start to enter into later forms of Buddhism, but in early Buddhism, this is as good as it gets unfortunately or fortunately <laughs> this is it this is what we have to deal with yeah? there is no other place there are two words one which might have been less familiar which is the word I talked about in terms of the circularity of our behaviour sangsara well what did the western world do it made a perfume out of it mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and the second term which is the other side of the coin, nirvana. Well, we made a rock band out of that one. (laughs) (laughs) Says a lot. (laughs) But seriously, about the sangsara, the circularity of behavior, which actually has as its main feeling tone this sense of dissatisfaction, this sense of friction, of things not running smoothly, not being quite right in your life as you live it. You know the sense of that from these minor forms of irritation that I keep mentioning to the forms of major distress which we encounter as we go through life. Now the Buddha is saying that sangsara is rooted in greed, aversion and delusion. That is what keeps it going. That's what keeps it going. Um, in some ways he often says as well that we are deeply attached to our pain. This is why we have great problems letting it go sometimes. Pain sometimes ends up forming part of our identity. We become so identified with it that we think this is the way we are as well. As many of you know, some people can turn a whole or create a whole sense of identity out of a set of symptoms. That's what they become, is their symptoms. And in a way, often our pains we find very difficult to let go simply because of the identification with them, creating of a sense of identity, so much so that we become fearful of letting them go. However, the stilling, the coming to rest of greed, aversion and delusion through the practice, through this particular practice, engaging what we engage in, the meditation practices, the attempts to live ethical lives, to live our lives in a different way, the attempt to move what we learn on the cushion and our walking meditations and that into the centre of our life, so they become, instead of being an adjunct to it, actually our lives become expressions of what we learn in this. All of this can bring, or give rise, perhaps I should say, can give rise to a stilling a stilling of the greed, aversion and delusion. Literally the word nirvana means gone out, the going out of those three fires. The going out of those three fires is not an absence but the presence of generosity, friendliness and understanding. That is what comes into being with the cessation of the fires of greed, aversion and delusion and all of the psychology that is rooted in it. All of the pain and all of the distress, the Buddha is saying, not the things are not going to happen to you, but the distress, which is self-created distress, can end. That is what can cease. We can cease to torment ourselves in all the myriad ways we have of doing that, from minor torments to the major ways of doing it through worry and anxiety and fear and all of these ways that we engage in. And as most of us know, where does worry and anxiety and fear actually get us? Well, usually into spirals of worry, anxiety and yet further fear. And as Mark Twain once said, he said, my life has been full of the most terrible misfortunes, most of which have never happened. So, that's where it gets us, often into wasting our lives, in some senses squandering our lives, in a series of thought patterns which actually never happen. Yet we seem so deeply rooted in them. So, this path, and I keep going on, this way that the Buddha talks about, this way which is composed of three components, a component of understanding a component of ethical living and a component of meditative being. This path, and for those who want to explore it further, particularly for the new people, this path is known as the ennobling eightfold path. It's what ennobles one by trying to live in that way, live in accordance with, you know, for example, right speech something i mentioned when i introduced the precepts last night trying to look at our speech acts and you know actually see the damage and the destruction that comes about through speech acts you know to not engage in false speech not engage in harsh speech and to deliberately divide one person against another you know sometimes we don't think we're engaging in this but when we actually look at it we might be doing that to engage in right action Actions which are not rooted, ultimately perhaps, in greed, aversion, and delusion. To engage in forms of right livelihood, this is the ethical component. You know, to have right view. And right view, in a sense, is to be open enough to have no view, you know, no fixed view, to be able to see life as it is, which is a flux. A continuous flux, which we can only take positions on, and whatever judgments we make ultimately will be defeated, often by the next moment. Yeah. So it's the kind of coming to rest of absolute views about anything. I could mention the whole of the Eightfold Path, but unfortunately we're running out of time here, and I want to leave a, you know, a few minutes or so at least to see some response see if there's any responses or questions to this. So this living, this path of these three dimensions of the ethics, the understanding and of the meditative path are the Buddha's strategies for bringing about this cessation of greed, aversion and delusion in our lives. Now in order to engage in this, and perhaps this is where I'll finish this evening, in order to engage in this, A, we have to want to do it. We have to see something of value in it. Just like the addict who doesn't admit they've got a problem can never overcome their addiction by people telling them that they've got a problem, then we have to examine this with our own hearts and minds and see whether these things are true for ourselves. This is something the Buddha insisted upon. You know, in Paraphrasing one of his discourses, he says basically, don't believe a word I say. he says don't believe it because I say it don't take it on authority don't take it on scriptural knowledge examine it against something which is the fundamental authority which is your own experience a much quoted I've never actually been able to find it in the Pali Canon so I hesitate to think it's in there but uh, there's a much quoted part which is in some of the Tibetan texts which says if a man hands you a piece of gold the sensible man goes, or sensible woman goes away and examines it or gets it assayed to see if it's worth anything. Because it could actually just be fool's gold. So the sensible person weighs everything, these teachings, even the things that I've been saying this evening, against their own experience and sees if any of it is true. Now, if any of it resonates, anything of it resonates as being actually the case, then perhaps that opens up this path of inquiry, of understanding, ethics, and meditative practice as ways of inquiring. Opens up as a path to perhaps overcoming some of the distresses that we encounter in our lives. Perhaps deals with some of that feeling that might not have emerged fully about the feeling about what something is what, what is actually going wrong here in your own lives, if anything is, and that's a, you know, that's a kind of surmise on my part. So you know, examine your own lives and see whether this is true. If there is dukkha or if there is not dukkha, that is the Buddha's starting point. And if there is, if you actually discern that there is something which is deeply unsatisfactory or even mildly unsatisfactory, then in a way we've got a problem. And that's the Buddha's starting point, is actually the recognition that we have a problem. That is what sustains us in this way. This is what sustains us on this path of engaging in the kinds of practices we've been engaging in today, of doing things which are difficult. Actually, he never comes along and says it's going to be easy. He never offers a promissory note and says, actually, it's all going to be really, really easy. Concentrating on your breath is a really easy thing to do. I've never encountered it in the text yet. (laughs) He doesn't say cultivating friendliness is an easy task. But in inclining our minds in this way, inclining our minds into doing something more wholesome and more positive, We can often see the spin-offs, we can often see the value in the ways that we start to deal with just simple things that arise in our life. Just on those odd occasions when you're confronted by the person who you find really difficult, and instead of fleeing as quickly as possible, you can stay around them for a few seconds longer with a a feeling of a, a sort of greater openness to actually perhaps listen to what they have to say. Instead of reactive patterns built into difficulties that arise in your life and all the awful things that can happen in our lives, we can be with them in a slightly different way. This doesn't mitigate grief and pain and all the things that we're talking about, but we begin to hold those in a different way so that we don't become attached to them and rooted in them and build those into our identity as well. So... To kind of try and draw this to conclusion, really the only thing I have to say is you have to examine how you want to live your lives. This is really what it's about. Actually, I always think that this meditative path, this meditative way ought to come with a government health warning. And, you know, engaging this in this could severely change your lives. Okay, I'm going to kind of conclude here, and I'll give some more remarks tomorrow in the morning and, and in the concluding thing about the actual practices we've been engaging in. But I just want to throw it open for a few minutes to see if there are any um, questions or comments, violent disagreements about all of this. Yeah. Be very interested to hear what you have to say. So here's your chance to speak. You've been in silence all day. <laughs> confused by acceptance and thinking that acceptance accepting something would somehow make it better Mm -hmm. I can kind of see that it's accepting that there is no kind of (coughs) miracle killer I suppose Mm. helpful yeah that's very much what it's about acceptance isn't about changing the phenomena acceptance is about coming into a different relationship with it this is what we're doing You know, so something is happening happened in your life. Acceptance is the openness to take that into your life and not react to it. Yeah. So, I think you've heard me say, you know, when we come to our own sense of how we are, the place we have to start from and is acceptance of who and what we are now. That's when change can take place. Yeah, from that basis of acceptance. Yeah now I might say because some people I know it came up in one of the groups acceptance isn't about accepting the unacceptable for example abuse and things like that is not about accepting those kinds of things injustice it's not about accepting that if we can do something about it we should do something about it but there's an awful lot in this world probably the great many things the vast majority that we can't do much about you know, for a start off we can't do anything about, much about old age sickness and death you know, we have to you know, in a way accept those into our lives as being something that we are the inevitabilities of being human being mortal so that's a kind of radical acceptance that we have to engage in there are aspects of our lives you know, for example if you're in a job and it changes um, that sometimes you have to accept those changes if you want to remain within that field of employment. You know, there are things, however, that one perhaps should do something against. You know, and I've mentioned just a couple of them and I'm sure you can think of many, many more, you know, such as abuse and injustice and intolerance um, and all the kinds of prejudices that we see in the world. These are the sorts of things we can and should be do some, doing something against. We don't just sit there on our cushion and not engage in social action if there is something we can do however, as I'm saying, there's an awful lot of things we can't do things about that we can only accept them yeah. Well, in, um, in talking about dukkha it seemed like there was the um, reacting to created suffering mm-hmm. and there's a set of um, death and sickness and and those sorts of things. So where that's the part of Dukkha you're responding to, mm-hmm. and there's sort of um, quite you know, a legitimate sadness. Is the accepting just being with that sadness, or you know, what? Mm. How, how are you with it? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. There are a sense two senses of Dukkha that are being talked about here. There is the... The dukkha that comes about just by being alive. You know, no matter who we are, at some point in time we'll lose somebody close to us. You know, and that might be a parent. Um, you know, from childhood we see pets die and things like this. So there's kind of a lot of loss in our lives. Um, in fact, the poet the German language poet Rilke once says, you know, we are in this life forever taking leave. You know, it's a beautiful way of putting it. That in a sense we're always saying goodbye to something, whether it's another human being or a situation or whatever it is, or even a state of mind, it's always changing. There is always something. So there is that inevitability. There is a kind of dukkha that is there all all the time. It's pervasive. It's part of the human condition. But then there is the dukkha which I call the self-inflicted wound which is, in a sense, the, the railing against it, the resistance to it, the reactiveness to it. So the acceptance comes in coming into a different relationship with those inevitabilities. That's where yeah, the change occurs. That you know, It can occur from the small things that like I mentioned last night, like sitting in a traffic jam, to the larger things. It doesn't mean that the traffic jam's gone away or somebody hasn't died or we haven't had a tragedy in our lives or something like that. But it means that we learn to hold it differently. We learn to hold it in a very, very different way. So that it's not abandoned but can be integrated into our lives in a way that isn't always a sense of a wound. There. There. because as we know sometimes that we can hold on to things in such a way that we create and hold on to our sense of woundedness. There's no healing going on here. This would be more like, if if I was using a metaphor, it would be more like having had a very bad wound that's healed over and you've still got the scar tissue. So the scar tissue is still present. and It might be tender, but it's not that deep woundedness that you had before. Yeah, so it's that kind of sense of acceptance that I'm talking about. Yeah, it's very important for dealing with the human condition. Yeah, this is very made very clear that the, there is there is this psychological sense of dukkha and there is the dukkha of what happens to us. And there's a very there's a very clear text in one of the ancient texts where the Buddha is walking along the road, and in ancient India you wouldn't wear things on your feet you know pretty hard feet but he steps for a particular reason i won't go into the reason but he steps on a shard of stone and it penetrates his foot yeah and it says this causes him immense pain as you can imagine it would do like stepping on a nail and it really penetrating your foot he said it causes him immense pain but no dukkha yeah He's not going, why didn't Joe Monk behind me step on it? <laughs> you no, know, He's not doing something like that. He's not um, saying, why is it? Why has this happened to me, as if I've been singled out to the world? It's happened. And it's kind of the acceptance that it's happened. Now deal with it. Yeah, that's that kind of sense. And you see examples of this all the way through the kind of um, stories that you know, you see in the Pali Canon, which is the main... Um, Source for all this material. John? Yeah. We go back to um, meta practice and we've been wishing uh, well on a benefactor and on mutual people and so forth. In the absence of a higher power or anything that's physical, Mm -hmm. um, how does it work? Should we expect results on our benefactor or our mutual? Do we, do we expect, no. no, is it are we doing it just solely for our own benefit then in order to as an antidote to yes. greed? Well it's an antidote. It's an antidote to aversion, it's an antidote to greed, um, but it's particularly it's, it's not about as you say, in the absence of a higher power, because there is no higher power, in on you know, as far as the Buddha is concerned, it's not even worth talking about whether there's anything outside of what he calls the all, this physical frame. Um, so what we're doing is, and I've used this phrase quite a number of times, inclining the mind. You know, it has positive benefits on ourselves, even if it never. Now, it might have positive benefits in the sense that I might behave better. With people because of this inclining of the mind, you know that's where the positive benefits and relationship is. Because I try to generate these mental states um, and do this as a, as a, as a period of tra- over a period of training, then it might have positive benefits in the world. But even at the sta- even at the beginner's stage, it's about your own mind. It's about how you can positively orient your mind in your dealings with the world in a different way. So that we're not constantly seeing the world through greed and aversion. Greed and aversion. Because that's often the way that we do. You know, often things that we like, you know, it's just simple sensations we want more of. Things that we don't like, we don't want any of. You know, and that's the way our kind of minds are pushed and pulled continuously. And so this has a benefit on the mind that is generating it, you know, inclining our mind in this particular way so it doesn't necessarily it's not like prayer yeah, I think you have to see a big distinction in saying may you be you know, safe and protected or whatever it might be there's lots of other phrases associated with the other states as well that we generate we're not saying I want to see a positive result that you're safe and protected because mm-hmm. yeah, that might not be the case but it's the the good wish That you're generating in your own mind, which has the positive results uh, in actually orienting that mind. Just one more, and then we perhaps will stop. Yeah. Uh, You briefly mentioned differences between early and later Buddhism. What are those differences? Well. uh, <laughs> I was thinking, saying, "How many days have you got?" <laughs> um I'll try and deal with this very, very quickly. Um, it's a long history, as you know. The history of Buddhism is two and a half thousand years. Um, forms of Buddhism were still being developed at least a thousand years after the Buddha's death. The main movement you see, and this occurs probably in the first three to four hundred years after the death About three hundred years after the Buddha's death is it starts to take on the trappings of Indian religion. It becomes much more religious. You know? And so some of the forms which the Buddha himself deliberately tried to push away as being having no part in what he was teaching, start to come into. And then we start to get the developments within Buddhism. So you might, some of you might have heard there's usually a distinction between Mahayana Buddhism, which is... The well, the great vehicle, it's usually translated, could be actually the vehicle to the great. Or non Mahayana Buddhism, of which there is only one representative left in the contemporary world, which is Theravada, which is the Buddhism we find in South Asia. And it's mainly the form Mahayana Buddhism goes into East Asia, you know, and particularly into China and Japan and Korea and becomes the dominant tradition there. And every time it moves into a new culture, it picks up further religious accretions to it. So by the time probably the latest, or the, or I should say the newest element in the Buddhist pantheon comes about Tibetan Buddhism, which is really never really establishes itself to about the 11th century properly in, in Tibet, then it's picked up an awful lot on the way It's picked up a lot on the way, including a lot of Hindu practices which find their way in, a lot of Hindu religious practices. So this is kind of a very, very kind of truncated history of it. But the main difference between what I've been teaching and what happens in later Buddhism is it becomes much, much more religious. This is why it takes its place in a way in the world's great religions. Yet in its inception... I don't think it really is at all. The Buddha is setting himself firmly against religions. Um, And if you don't believe me, all I say is go away and read the Pali Canon. You won't find much religious stuff in the Pali Canon. He's usually actually making fun of religion in the Pali Canon. Um, There's a very nice instance, which I'll just give you one example of, where he finds a couple of Brahmins who are basically sending water to the ancestors by throwing it towards the sun. And the Buddha comes along and he picks down and he starts throwing it in the opposite direction. And they're absolutely horrified and said to him, what are you doing? He says, I'm watering the fields. <laughs> you know, so you find instances like this where he deliberately pokes fun at the religious traditions um, to get people to think about what they're doing more often than not. So there's a deliberately anti-religious element within the Buddha's path. Not anti-spiritual, but anti-religious. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.